Hey everybody, welcome to Writing Religion Online, Scholars and Journalists in Conversation. My name is Kaylee Handelman and I am the program coordinator at the NYU Center for Religion and Media and I edit our online magazine about religion and media called The Revealer. Um, I'm really excited to be here with everyone today and to talk with them and talk with all of you. Um, I'm going to give a few just sort of prefatory introductory remarks and um, explain a bit about the, the structure of today's event since it's not the usual just reading papers at you and then, uh, and then we'll just do that. Um, so we're really, really pleased to be here today. This event is um, part of the work we're doing under the auspices of a grant from the Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, uh, which is a three-year project that we're doing called Religious Stakes in Digital Times, Scholars and Journalists in Conversation. Hence the scholars and journalists in conversation. Uh, we're just doing that, you know, IRL today, <laughs> um, rather than rather than online. But talking about the online, um, we're doing a number of different projects under that grant, uh, and one of the one of them is this. We're doing a series of events, and we are hiring a series of one-year postdoctoral fellows to come and work with us at CRM and at the Revealer. Patrick Blanchfield is our very first. And applications are now open for the next one. So there are these very colorful, flamboyant flyers on a chair over there, and it's all over our website and social media. So please uh, tell people and apply and uh, come hang out with us. Um, so for this panel, we want to have this conversation between scholars and journalists, you know, like I said, actually in person. Um, we organize this around sort of trends we've been, we've been noticing and conversations we've already been having and that we wanted to expand on. We've noticed over the last decade there's been an explosion of online religion writing and we're interested in how new publications continue to emerge and with them new kinds of writing and new kinds of writers. We're seeing that there are more and more ways for scholars to share their expertise and knowledge with both academic audiences and non-academic ones. Um, at the same time, we're also seeing an increasing number of journalists who are covering religion and trying to do that, frankly, just better, um, to, do, to do a different kind of work. Um, so not only are these two, two fields growing and changing, but they're also starting to intersect and to blur in some really productive and interesting ways. Um, we, we started this conversation together around two, two main questions. One what does this work mean for the future of religious studies and for thinking within and beyond the academy? Um, and the other, how do we train scholars and journalists to do their jobs well? Um, we also, as we were planning this, we'd done some preliminary work and then, and then the election. Um, so <laughs> we had a whole bunch of questions for each other that I think we'll probably still touch on, but wanted to acknowledge um, that a lot of those questions are being felt and framed in some new and, and newly urgent ways. And so we're gonna be, that will be a big part of what we're talking about also, I hope. Um, so the way this is gonna work today, I'll introduce everybody. Um, and then um, each of the panelists will say a bit about their work and how they came to do it. And then we will have a conversation sort of amongst ourselves. Um, and then, and then hope to bring you to bring you into that conversation. Uh, we organized this panel in a way that uh, we've started doing pretty consistently at NYU, which is again 
not writing papers and pre-circulating them or not pre-circulating them and just reading them to you, but rather um, sharing our work with one another and then developing some questions for each other, sharing them with each other, getting a conversation in motion, um, and then coming to you with that conversation, continuing it and bringing you into it. Uh, so everyone here has read one another's work is familiar with each other's general bios, but maybe doesn't already, a lot of you don't already know each other, right? And so this is the first time for them to really talk in, talk to each other and talk in public. Um, so yes, like I said, they'll each say something about themselves and then we'll, we'll chat and then we'll chat with you. Um, I wanted to mention Timothy Michael Law was supposed to be with us, but he's, he's no longer uh, able to join us today, so. It's, it's just us. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read you everyone's bios quickly, and then, and then we'll get started. So uh, first, Brooke Wilensky Lanford is the author of Paradise Lust, Searching for the Garden of Eden, which the New York Times Book Review, I love this, praised as neither too academic nor too whimsical. <laughs> she says uh, that she has been trying to walk that line ever since, uh, with essays on religion and popular culture for the New Republic, the New Yorker Books Blog, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Boston Globe, the Guardian, religion and politics, the Revealer, religion dispatches, and killing the, Budi the Buddha, uh, which is a 16-year-old online magazine for, quote, people made anxious by churches. Although I think you said you have maybe a new byline or a new, a new slogan. We, we just, like to alternate taglines. Now we're going with dispatches from the margins of faith. Nice. Um, uh, of which she is also the current editor. A graduate of Columbia University's MFA program in nonfiction writing, she is currently pursuing her PhD in American religious history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Simranjit Singh is an assistant professor in the Department of Religion at Trinity University. He is a senior religion fellow for the Sikh Coalition, a Truman National Security Fellow for the Truman National Security Project, and a Honda Fellow in Interreligious inter Communication. Simran's academic expertise focuses on the history of religious communities and literatures in South Asia, and he has taught at Columbia University and Trinity University on Buddhist, Hindu, Islamic, and Sikh traditions. His dissertation centers around a text called the... Ratan Janam Sakhi. It's way better than mispronouncing it myself, which stands as the earliest known account of the founder of the Sikh tradition. Simran's recent scholarship and public engagement examines xenophobia, racial profiling, and hate violence in post-9-11 America. His latest scholarly article on this topic is entitled Muslimophobia, Racialization, and Mistaken Identity. Simran has com contributed over 50, 50 opinion pieces to news outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Guardian. He has become an expert for reporters and news outlets across the world and frequently offers his perspectives to television, radio, and print media. Simran also speaks regularly on a variety of topics related to diversity, inclusion, civil rights, religion, and hate violence, and his thought leadership extends to a number of audiences. Simran has a PhD from Columbia University, a graduate degree from Harvard, and an undergraduate degree from Trinity University here in San Antonio. And lastly, Patrick Blanchfield is the 2016-2017 Henry R. Luce Initiative in Religion and International Affairs postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Religion and Media at NYU, which is a thing we could abbreviate. Um, now that I'm reading it out loud to you. Um, he holds a PhD in comparative literature from Emory University and is a graduate of the Emory University Psychoanalytic Institute. He writes about gun violence, trauma, and religion, religion and masculinity. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Nation, the New York Daily News, N Plus One, The New Inquiry, Foreign Policy, and elsewhere. 
Um, and like I said, I'm the program coordinator at NYU's Center for Religion and Media, and, and maybe relevant for the conversation today, just quickly, I, um, I also work for an enterprise called the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, uh, which provides liberal arts educational opportunities to local communities, so also bringing academic work out into the public. Um, my BA is in Cultural and Religious Studies from Eugene Lang, and um, I have a Master's in Religious Studies from Columbia, so not wanting to leave NYU and continue to work in religion and media. Here I am. <laughs> uh, so that was a lot from me. Now we're going to hear we're going to hear from from each of you and then continue chatting. We can just go just go this way. Sure. Okay. Sure. Hi everyone, uh, thank you for being here. Um, I, I'll just sort of talk talk briefly about how I came into the space that I now occupy. Um, I'll, I'll start with my my childhood actually because that's for me where the story begins. Uh, being someone who has grown up in Texas, now that you're here, you know what it's like. Um, what you don't know is what it's like to grow up looking like this in, in a context like this. Um, and so, so for me, uh, the experience of, you know, discrimination and, and uh, xenophobia were sort of standard uh, experiences for myself and my family. And so from a young age, it was, it was very important for us to be able to um, both articulate ourselves uh, and talk about our identity. Um, but also to figure out how to uh, respond when things happen, um, both for the purposes of safety and security, um, you know, physically, uh, but also for sort of the general health of our of our local communities. And so, um, that's that's really where the story begins for me. And it was not as if this was a clear path to my future. Um, it was it was just sort of a part of who I was, who my family was. Um, and as I got into um, the academic world, uh, I, I, I quickly realized that there was not actually uh, much representation uh, in these spaces for my community. Uh, the Sikh community had been here for over 100 years, and, and there, there really hasn't been and still isn't much of a, a, a basic understanding of who Sikhs are, where they come from. And so it's been a very sort of interesting um, realization for me that this is something that I can and probably should do. One of the, one of the sort of, I guess, the, the pivotal moments for me uh, occurred in, in 2012. Um, so I should, I should contextualize by saying this, that I, growing up, I, I had always been entirely fearful of ever speaking publicly. And I don't just mean publicly, I mean in the classroom. Um, I, I would never speak. Um, I, if I had a microphone in front of me, if I had to get up in front of a, a group, uh, my hands would shake, my voice would shake. I just could not do it. Um, when I was in graduate school at Harvard Divinity, um, I, I joined a writing group uh, called State of Formation, which is uh, it's, it's essentially a blog for young academics uh, who are in religion uh, to start expressing their ideas in a public way. And that was the first time that I was actually putting myself out there and I, I, feeling vulnerable, but feeling like it was, it was sort of growing me. Um, and from there, I moved into writing for the Huffington Post. And so those were sort of my two initial moments uh, in representing religion in a public way. 
in 2012, there was a massacre of six in a Gurdwara in Wisconsin. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of that, uh, for the first time in over a century, uh, six were in the national spotlight. And what we quickly realized was that we didn't have anybody in our community who would step forward uh, and represent uh, these issues. And so Don Lemon on CNN, they were the first to cover it. Uh, he was absolutely unaware of who six were. Uh, at first he was talking about them as Hindus, then he started talking about them as Muslims, and eventually <laughs> we got him around to, to, to you know, get the graphic up on CNN. Um, but this, was, this is the, the real sort of, this is the reality of our, of our understanding of religious literacy in this country. Um, and so it was in that moment um, that as a graduate student at Columbia, uh, as someone who was both a scholar uh, and a practitioner and somebody who worked on issues of hate violence and discrimination um, that I sort of pushed myself. I was pushed, but I was also pushing myself uh, to take this role as a spokesperson for the community. So one of the things I would say that's unique about my position in this um, is that for people who look like me uh, in this political context, it's not really a choice uh, for us to be public about this engagement. Um, it is a matter of survival for us. And so I've been doing this from my childhood in different ways. Uh, my parents do this in different ways. My brothers and sisters do this in different ways, but we all do it. Um, and for me, it has been understanding the power of this particular platform uh, to be able to represent religion in a deeper way for the purposes of public intellectualism, we can say, um, but also to do it in a very sort of superficial way, in a context where that superficiality is lacking uh, and we need to actually sort of broaden people's understandings. So that's, that's how I entered into this space. I was completely unprepared um, and, <laughs> and, and fell into it sort of accidentally. Um, but because of my training in religious studies, it was a very sort of natural fit for me. Um, it, was, it was a bootstrap approach, essentially. Um, I was getting calls from reporters, creating my own media messages, passing them along to our community. Um, I was writing my own op-eds without any help. I was pitching on my own. Um, and so I learned, I learned a lot, and I made a lot of mistakes. Um, and, and the next phase of this development for me occurred um, I joined uh, the Sikh Coalition, which is the largest Sikh civil rights organization in the US. Uh, they were established on 9-11, the day of, as the backlash sort of swept around the country. Uh, in joining the Sikh Coalition, um, I was able to professionalize how I engaged in this work. I still work for the coalition as a part-time fellow. Um, and I worked under a communications director who had been with Rethink Media. You have probably seen their work if you pay attention to uh, responses to Islamophobia in this country. They do a lot of the sort of messaging behind the scenes. So my director <coughs> sat me down on the first day and said, you've been doing a great job figuring it out on your own, but let's learn the next steps. And, and the first lesson I learned, and this is you know the last thing I'll really say, it's the most important lesson I've learned, um, is that Doing this work is all about relationships. 
we can say that about anything, right? Working in a university is all about relationships. Working in business is all about relationships. But when we're doing the work, we often forget that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so those of us in this room, we have an immense amount of knowledge, um, but we don't actually know who to talk to and how to get this information out there. Um, so we sat down on the first day, we pulled up uh, a, a software program that he had access to, and we said, let us create a spreadsheet of every single reporter we want to know. And over the last three years, uh, we have developed such strong relationships which, with each of those reporters that anytime something happens, anytime they're working on a story uh, that relates to the type of work that I do, uh, I get a call or I get an email or I get a text or I get a DM, anything. Um, and it's not about, you know, myself needing to be quoted in these stories. I, you know, it's, that's not the work that I'm trying to do. It's more how can I be of service to these individuals who are writing these stories that don't actually have the depth of knowledge that we in this room have. Um, and so my, my advice to you there would be once those relationships are established, uh, it is, if you're interested in this sort of contributing to journalism, um, it, is, it is a generous and selfless enterprise. It is not about yourself being quoted. I would say 19 times out of 20, I don't, my name doesn't appear in the article, but it is, you know, I feel good about the fact that I'm guiding these reporters to represent these stories in the ways that I think they ought to be represented, especially when these reporters don't have the type of depth in understanding that we do. They, they have far more breadth than we do, generally speaking. They cover everything in religion, but they don't have our specialty knowledge, and that's where we can really get involved. So I'll leave it there. That's, that's sort of the role that I've been playing. Um, but yeah, we each do really different things, and so you'll hear something different from Brooke. Thanks, Simon. Can we swivel the mic? Swivel. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Thank you. My name is Brooke Walensky-Lanford, and um, right now I wear a number of very different hats. I am a second-year student in the PhD program at UNC Chapel Hill in American Religious History, and I'm also the editor of the online website, Killing the Online Website, the, the <laughs> online magazine, Killing the Buddha. Um, I'm also continuing to try to freelance uh, write for non-academic outlets on my own. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling like I'm juggling a number of roles and I realize um, that I sort of always have, but um, re the religious studies role and the role of writer and storyteller for me have always sort of interacted in an organic um, way. I mean, I even trace the, the beginning of this relationship to taking a um, freshman seminar in college called Religion and Story. And that was like a big wake-up moment for me that um, the two really uh, can be the same. And so I started looking at telling uh, the story of religion, telling my own religious story or lack thereof in some cases, um, and, and went with the writing route for a long time. Um, in my MFA program, as um, was mentioned, I ended up getting back into religion through writing um, and wrote this narrative history of people looking for a biblical place on the literal earth. Um, and it took me into all sorts of uh, nooks and crannies and, and libraries and archives that um, really inspired me. Um, after that book came out, I kept doing public writing. 
ended up doing like a lot of short essays and book reviews and sort of responding to religion and pop culture kind of articles, um, which, you know, is it's not it's it's not reporting necessarily. It's more like criticism, I guess I would call myself. Um, but I found a way to sort of have a niche in a conversation um, where I could just sort of the thesis statement of all of those essays that I wrote was like religion isn't what you think it is. <laughs> like, and by the you, I meant readers of The Guardian and The New Republic and, and a sort of um, Northeastern liberal elite, um, <laughs> latte drinking, Volvo driving, NPR listening, among which I, I dearly count myself. Um, but to just sort of say, you know, religion doesn't equal, it doesn't equal conservatism. It just doesn't. Um, and that's like a small little intervention, but it's one that I felt the need to keep making. Um, and that's kind of what pushed me. Uh, so I was writing all over the place on lots of different religious topics, which um, as a journalist, you find that there's always a need for it. And as Simran was just saying, rarely somebody to sort of fill the knowledge gap. So I was reviewing books about Mormons and about Jesus and about the history of, uh, you know, God knows what. And I felt very scattered. Um, I felt like I was doing a lot of breadth, but not a lot of depth. Um, so I ended up applying to PhD programs. Um, and I'm now doing American religious history, trying to focus on the history of religious liberalism. Um, again, making that same sort of intervention of religion is not what you think it is. Um, although the history of religious liberalism right now feels a little bit, <sighs> You know, um, so so I'm currently uh, a student again um, at a, a somewhat advanced age, and it has been a really interesting sort of. I feel a little bit of culture shock in academia. Um, I feel like I'm doing the reverse of what a lot of folks are doing are talking about right now, which is um, getting people in PhD programs to emerge out into the world and write for the public, which I think is awesome. I'm, I'm doing the reverse. And uh, I, if, if I could say sort of one lesson um, or, or thing that I've learned or piece of advice already, I would say that um, I feel a lot of anxiety from my fellow graduate students and faculty also about writing for the public in religious studies. Um, particularly around terms that we don't even, you know, religion is a contested term in our discipline, and so how do we take that and, and talk about religion to a public? Um, so I feel a lot of that anxiety, and, um, and there's also the very real fear of, like, what does writing for a blog do for my, for my CV and for my progress toward a tenure track and all of that? So I'd like to offer myself as a uh, canary in that particular <laughs> mind shaft because there's I'm now on an academic track, but there's no putting that cat back into the bag. If someone were to Google me, they're going to find the very angry um, post-election post I wrote on killing the Buddha last week, which used a not-so-nice word um, and had a big picture of Inigo Montoya on the front. Anyway, um, so, you know, personal writing, academic writing, critical writing, it's all out there for me. I can't unring that bell. Um, and I'm really interested to see what happens when um, I do go out on the academic job market in a few years. Maybe by then it'll be a thing that is not a thing anymore. Maybe not. Um, but I'll let you all know. And meanwhile, I would say if you're in that position, be brave. Write for the public. Public needs you. Public loves you. Do it. Mm -hmm.
don't know if I yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just pass it. Yeah. They're recording us, so we're yeah, we're to have the mic. Can yeah. am I audible? Yes. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, it, it's a joy to be here today with with everyone else. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm Patrick Blanchfield. I'm uh, currently the the Henry R. Luce postdoc fellow, uh, postdoctoral fellow in, in religion and international affairs um, at at NYU. Probably would be good to shorten that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, however, it's it's a wonderful position, and like if you're yeah, apply for it. Really, pick up one of those. Like you you couldn't work with better people or at a better institution. So really, just yeah. Um, um, so, so my deal is I, I, uh, I'm an academic. I'm sort of neither fish nor fowl at this point. Uh, I, I'm an academic, uh, and I'm a, a freelance journalist. Uh, I have a PhD in comparative literature that I got from uh, Emory University back in 2015, uh, where I did religion and comp lit. And I, I also have uh, uh, four years of clinical training as a psychoanalyst, um, which means that I, I, what's preventing me from seeing patients is largely not having done supervision myself, uh, and uh, we can, there are interesting reasons for that, but I'll like, try and explain that model to a loan officer, and you might get a sense of why it's not really that viable. Uh, uh, so yeah, and, but, but, but since 2012, I, I've, I've been doing journalistic freelance writing for a variety of outlets online and print, magazine stuff, uh, and I, I'm, I'm eager to talk about that. Uh, to talk about sort of the trajectory that got me to where I am right now and in terms of what I might be able to share in terms of experiences or best practices, uh, it's a little bit circuitous. Uh, I did literature as an undergrad. Uh, I actually did, did Proust and, and I really had a thing about classical Chinese poetry. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, uh, that went well. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, and you know, I, after college, I took some time off, worked in the nonprofit world for a bit, and then ultimately decided that I really wanted to get back into the academy. Uh, and so I, and I, I developed this interest in, in, in apocalyptic literature and in sort of survivalist culture and apocalypticism in general. And uh, so I, I went to Amory, which in addition to having a, a very robust complet program and tied with the GDR, I'm sure there may be some of you out here, also has a I think a really excellent psychoanalytic institute where I could do training, uh, and so uh, I did that, and it was it was it was wonderful. Um, and I wound up writing a dissertation uh, about uh, sort of a, a comparative piece about whether or not about parental mourning for for deceased children, and it was whether it was interrogating whether or not this is a, a human universal in the language of anthropology, and it was a sort of a massive. Uh, depressing undertaking uh, that, that surveyed a, a great deal of uh, literatures and languages and engaged religion throughout, right? Because that's one of those lexicons that people bring to bear on thinking through that experience. Um, it, it, things sort of changed for me, though, as I was dissertating in, in 2012. Sort of three things happened simultaneously. Um, first, I, I was working with this dissertation material, which was trying, and, and I should say just cards on the table that that's uh, the question of, of parental mourning for deceased children is uh, is, is resonant for in my family tree sort of consistently so this was very sort of personally intense um, second uh, there were a series of uh, sort of awful program program cuts at the university where I was was at at the time at Emory you may have remember you may have perhaps have caught this in the news sometime afterwards our, our uh, basically we we, we Emory uh, gutted, it ended its, uh, its education program, which at the time was the, the oldest 
uh, education program in the South that produced more PhDs of color for Southern schools than any other program in the country. Uh, that we ended our classics program because you know who needs that. Uh, stopped funding our Spanish program for a couple of years. Basically, just downsized everything because you know we we, we needed to be more intellectual, uh, internationally competitive was the line. Uh, and so people lost their funding. People who just got it was it was a really it was a, it was a bloodbath. Uh, it eventually rose to to national uh, prominence insofar as that our president, who has since resigned, shockingly, uh, wrote uh, a rather ill-advised uh, column in the alumni newspaper that went out to 100,000 people in which he sort of like attempted to put everything in a very nuanced historical perspective by comparing the program cuts to the uh, the, the three-fifths compromise, which some of you may be familiar with, right? His, and his specific line of it, the way he framed this was that, was that like, you know, we have our differences here, but uh, in various points in our national history, we've, we've, we've rallied around meaningful progressive moments. And so consider how when the northern and southern states uh, were fa faced with the vexing question of slavery, they decided to find something that both sides, both sides, could agree on, uh, which was namely counting human beings as three-fifths persons. And, and so, so this, this, was, this was a mess, and I was involved, and um, in, in, or it, it was, uh, I, I, I said this not because I'm still carrying this grudge, though I think it's a ludicrous <laughs> story uh, that, that is worth trailing him and that institution for a long time. Uh, but I, I got involved in academic labor organizing and attempting to reverse the cuts, and that made national headlines, and I was involved in that for some time. Uh, and then the third thing that happened in 2012, and this is, you, you may sense from my, my investment in psychoanalysis, this is all very overdetermined. Uh, I, I, I had been working on this dissertation, which was all about dead children. The academy was getting gutted uh, around me. And, uh, and then, uh, the, the year started with, with the killing of Trayvon Martin, uh, and it ended with the Sandy Hook massacre. And um, this was obviously horrifying stuff um, uh, for, for, for the people involved individually, for our nation, and it, it uh, really messed me up too. Uh, and at that point, sort of having uh, bitterly lost a lot of faith in the academic enterprise, at least in my institution, uh, having sort of working through a lot of resistances with my own dissertation project uh, and facing these sort of really intense political concerns that touched upon areas of longstanding concern for me, I decided to, 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 to try to actually go public with some writing that I've been doing for some time about guns in America. Uh, and so since then, I've, I, I've just been doing that one way or another. I've, I've taught at institutions. I taught at uh, Swarthmore and in the religion program there. I taught at Philadelphia University, adjuncting and that kind of stuff. But uh, I have been fr freelancing more or less full time uh, and uh, I'm glad to talk about the, the nature of that hustle, because uh, it is. Uh, uh, I'm glad to talk about best practices. I want to absolutely echo Simran's point about relationships, uh, and I, your point about bravery as well. I think that's very much there. Um, so yes, it's, it's been a strange journey, and I'm eager to, tell, to share whatever I, I can about those things, or you know, also to, if you want later to talk about gun violence or masculinity or trauma or any of these other sort of uplifting things, we can do that too. Thanks. remembering why I was so excited to get all of you together. Um, the thing I didn't say before is we, we spoke this morning and decided we wanted to kind of partition the conversation today. Uh, in some way, we have about another hour together, and we wanted to spend the first half of our half hour just talking to each other, talking about training and what it means to get trained, be it as a scholar, as a journalist, as both when you get formal training, when you have to learn on your own, as, as everyone has had some, some mix thereof. Um, 
And it's something we talk about when we talk about professionalization, when we talk about the market, I mean, all of these things. What, what do we mean by training? Um, and then the second part of the conversation is like, well, then what are we doing with that training? And what do we see as the work that we have in front of us? How are we going to do it responsibly? Uh, what do we think are the most urgent demands? And, and how, do we, how do we do that well? Uh, so, so that'll be the, the general structure. Um, I'm going to start us off with a question, and then and then we'll go for from there. I was thinking uh, as I was getting ready for today, and I was thinking about um, one of the most consistent challenges going into and back out of the academy and into uh, editing has been this idea of jargon and the the problem of, of specialized language. And um, I always think about uh, a student I had uh, a couple of years ago who told me that. Uh, when he started school, he found what he called jargon super alienating. He had no idea what people were talking about. Um, and then after a little while, he, he got it, and it clicked, and he said it was really empowering. He had all these new tools, and it was really fun for a while, and then he was over it. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, like I'm done. I'm going to go like do something useful. Screw this. Um, and, I, and I realized, like, oh, the thing is that like academics don't ever get to that third part. Like I think a lot of us get like it continues to be empowering. We're like, yeah, let's like this language is really like I, I want more of this, um, and we and we don't get to the jaded part, or we get jaded, but maybe differently. Um, we definitely get jaded. Um, so uh, jargon is this thing, and it, it often is a way of of dismissing something or or not dealing with it or sort of pointing at another problem. Um, and I'm not even sure what, what jargon is, and maybe that's part of the question. Um, but then there is this, it, it does matter, and it does give us precision, and it is an important set of tools. And so I was thinking about that sort of initiation or inauguration into, into a field and the sort of being alienated by the terms and then coming to master them and coming to use them and then maybe coming to reject them also. And that, uh, that this is one of, and then more pragmatically that, um, I work a lot with with scholars editing their work for um, for publication for non-academic audiences and trying to think about there are times when I think it's really useful for them to come up, come up against specialized language and to deal with it and to to try to understand it. Um, we can hyperlink it. They can go find it somewhere. It's in context. Being aware about those things, but then also understanding that it can be it can be alienating and repellent, and that people may just not bother when they see it, um, and that it can, it can not only uh, repel people, but it can feed a kind of anti-intellectualism, that like, oh, these elites and their special language, and they don't know how to talk to the people, et cetera. And so I wanted, I wanted to sort of open the conversation with that of like, what, are those, what does it mean to learn those tools and to use them, and then to maybe sometimes not use them? So that's the question. <laughs> what do you think about jargon? <laughs> Sure. I have thoughts about jargon. <laughs> um, I, your, your question makes me first think about uh, my experience as editor of Killing the Buddha, which, as you can probably tell by the name, you know, strives for a, a particularly, um, certainly a non-academic tone, possibly an irreverent tone. Um, and we, but yet we do also serve as sort of a, a busman's holiday for many scholars of religion who or scholars of other things, in fact, who have something that they really want to say and they want to say in a particular way, and we tend to be a place where you can say things that you can't in other places. Um, 
So I do a lot of finessing of that of that jargon, um, as as uh, Kelly with the revealer would do, and it's tricky. I always just have to remind scholars that they are not writing for other scholars. Um, for me, it's really as a writer and as an editor, it's about keeping your public and your readership in mind. Um, at KTB, we call it KTB for short. For um, we, we love acronyms. <laughs> um, so at, at KTB, we also, we work with scholars writing for a non-scholarly audience, but we also work with religious insiders writing for non-religious insiders. Um, our, our, we take that margins of faith thing very seriously. Um, and, and I found it interesting how often those two forms of jargon feel similar. Um, I remember a story by a, a wonderful Canadian Episcopal priest who was talking about the the last churches in this tiny town, and he had beautiful pictures, and at a couple of points used the term we to refer, refer to Episcopalians. Um, and that's not jargon, I mean, it's just a different pronoun, but he still had to shift his thinking about who he was writing for. I had to say very nicely, this is not an Episcopalian <laughs> magazine. Um, so I do that a lot. And currently in my, um, my new academic career, I definitely feel like I'm having to learn, um, learn that language that I've been trying to take out of other people's writing for, for years. Um, so it's a little bit um, awkward for me. And I think I'm probably still in the beginning of that second stage with jargon where I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. I need to crack this, you know, so I can own it. Um, so I'm still, I'm still there. You look like you're sure. nodding, Patrick. <laughs> I think, I'm picking up what you're laying down. I think you're right. Cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I th one thing that sort of immediately uh, occurs to me is that uh, is to sort of wonder about like what's the role that jargon or whatever it is we're going to call it jargon plays in our academic fields, right? Uh, and and I think that the, it might be helpful to, to to have a sort of a prima facie opposition uh, between sort of obfuscatory jargon uh, and uh, and jargon that's in the service of precision, right? And I think uh, those of us who are engaged or, pro or process a lot of academic writing will encounter sometimes this a lot of, um, I think here, my, my discipline was complete, right? So there's the, you, can, you, you can imagine certain types of like theory heavy, like polysyllabic sort of sentences that grow in under their own weight. And in, in good academic writing that actually comes to a focus or opens up new perspectives and bad academic writing is just a series of sort of gestures that essentially do something. I, I, I'm not really sure what they do anymore. Um, and I think that that the former kind of jargon is, 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 is something that really is a awful hurdle that, you know, and, and something that should be dispensed with in both academic and popular writing. Uh, but in the second instance, like I, if, if the jargon is about refining a thought or, or getting something across, then perhaps that's worth keeping, but perhaps there's a way to do that in ordinary language. And in fact, I think it's a good proof that you're doing that, that you can then translate that into ordinary language. Um, and that's something that uh, oftentimes that, that it breaks down in terms of very specific sort of tactical conversations with given editors, right? Like what term is the hill that you wanna die on? 
in terms of a sentence, right? Like, at what point are you, did you like, did you, because, because the exigencies are very different, right? You don't need to show that you're cognizant of, like, Agamben's critique of X, Y, and Z in order to make your basic point for people at, like, you know, HuffPo or the Daily Beast or something, right? But if you do want to sort of, like, disrupt a certain, like, basic binary, maybe you want to keep one of these terms. And you, and you have it, and then oftentimes that's a back and forth between you and your editors. It's a lot of rephrasing. That's a lot of, like, um, using apposite clauses to sort of get around it. Uh, and I think good editors, of which there are two phenomenal ones here, uh, sort of help in this myutic way with that. Um, I think the, the other thing I'll say is that I think religious studies is, is actually perhaps more than many other fields, and here I'm thinking of my, my, my beloved friends in Complit, uh, has a wonderful toolkit for thinking through just practically problems of jargon, right? Because as, as you already alluded to, that there are these religious studies scholars work with an emic edit distinction very frequently. Right, or I think here of, of, of William Proudfoot's work on like the ascriptive and the descriptive. Forgive me, I don't. If I've forgotten some of these things, I haven't remembered that since my exams. But like being able to describe well, what's what's coming from the speaker and what is your external sort of etic terminology, and that's a toolkit. That's a consciousness that a lot of other academics in other disciplines just constitutionally don't have. Uh, and so, on that way, I think religious studies scholars have a leg up. Let me agree with both of you, but say it in a, in a little bit of a different way. Um, okay, so if, if we accept the premise that jargon is useful in our academic context for the purpose of precision, um, we, we, we can reflect on the first lesson we teach our students in writing, which is who is your audience, right? If, if we're speaking to one another in this room, jargon is precise, right, that works. But if, if we're speaking outside of this room to anybody walking on the river right now, um, it's, it's alien language, it's, it's, and it's alienating language, right? It's, it, it feels like you're talking down to them. And, and not only is it not comprehensible, it's actually counterproductive. This is the way in which we end up in the situation that people say, well, you are this elite community of people who have your own source of information, and we want our own source that talks to people like us. Right, that's what we're seeing in our country right now. So I think, I think really this question of jargon is a question of audience. Um, it's my, my understanding of, of, of the way this works is that if we as scholars continue to talk to public audiences and insist on using our jargon, that's, that's arrogant, that's self-serving, right? We're only doing it because of how we consider ourselves in relation to other people. Uh, we are not humble enough to meet people where they are. And that's what we tell our students to do. That's what we have to do. The other, the other thing I'll say there is there are ways in which we can write to public audiences as intellectuals, right? So there's a way in which Brooke does that for Killing the Buddha, where the readership is, is people who are familiar with the religious studies. It works to have jargon in there sometimes. Or what Kaylee does with the revealer, it works. But there are other ways in which we can when we're talking to more popular audiences, um, complicate their understandings in ways that get at that precision that we get to with jargon. Mm -hmm. So for example, if, we're t if, if, if the point is, right now in this country there is a monolithic understanding of Islam as evil, violent terrorist, 
Um, how do we how do we counter that? Right. It's not telling people, well, let's look at Orientalism. Right. That's not what you write in an 800 word <laughs> opinion piece. But instead, you might write a feature piece um, where you lift up a story about a local Muslim who does cool things, hip hop, basketball, whatever. And that's a story that complicates people's monolithic understandings that that gets at that precision of complicating religion as we sort of understand it. Um, another example that really comes to mind, I see Peter Manceau in the back, um, and, and he's, he's done, done a fantastic job of showing us what is this issue of civic religion. Um, his, his book, One Nation Under Gods, is a real academic book, but then he's turned that into New York Times pieces and Washington Post pieces in which he is taking that precise academic work and translating it for a public audience. And I think each of us can do that with the academic work that we do, uh, but it has to be done in a way that meets people where they are. Do you guys want to add anything? All right, I think then uh, great if you guys want to ask each other questions since that's, you have your, your lists of, pre, of pre-written questions. If there's one you're really challenging to ask, that would be great about each other's oh my gosh. Um, I did want to ask Simran, um, and you've, you've talked about this already, but I'm still curious to know more about how your writing for the public and your teaching in the classroom coalesce, relate, interrelate, um, different publics. Yeah, I, well, I'll, I'll talk about, so one, one of the things I'm careful about in the classroom is not getting too... Uh, preachy in terms of advocacy, right? I do. I have my advocacy hat or my turban um, on the one hand, uh, uh, and I have my teaching space. And I, I teach something. I teach Islamic studies, um, and and a lot of my work deals with, you know, Islamophobia, and and we do that in class. Um, I guess the, the the one really interesting intersection for me. Um, has been empowering my students to think about what it means to study religion as academics, but then also translating that to the public themselves. So I used to teach Islam. Uh, my, my prep class is Intro to the Quran. I used to teach it as um, a paper that is in three papers in exegesis, uh, the second pa- as in the position of a Muslim, the second paper that comes as a scholarly paper um, that is an, an analysis of an exegesis. Uh, and Asura together. Uh, and the third paper is on a concept of their choice. Right? That is sort of the model, and it's a very standard model in our field. I scrapped that entirely and said, let's do one uh, academic piece. Um, let's then move into an opinion piece. Um, and the, what I did there was I told them, I, I give them sort of prompts that got gesture towards the more academic sort of intellectual ideas, but push them to write in a way that addresses these issues of engaging with the public. And I tell them if they write a good enough piece, I'll pitch it to my contacts. And if it's published, they get an automatic A. And they work five times harder on that piece than, any, than anything yeah. else that they do otherwise. Um, and, and my students have become very empowered because they're getting published in places that they wouldn't have ever imagined otherwise. And then the third thing that I've just implemented this semester um, is a lived religions project, um, which again, it's ethnographic. They're meeting with people, uh, complicating their understandings of Islam, exploring questions that they're interested in, um, and then producing um, 
photo essays and videos that go into a digital archive, along with an academic paper. Um, but what that does is it creates a deeper sense of literacy for them, uh, but then that gets reproduced and perpetuated out into the public. So these photo essays and videos are not for just me, they're, they're out in the public, they're in the world, uh, and the students really enjoy doing that sort of project. So that's a way in which sort of this intersection of the classroom and, and, and the public engagement have manifested for me. That sounds wonderful. Your students are lucky. Do <laughs> you want to add to that? No? Uh, this morning I was thinking about, about one of your questions that you had for the group that maybe we could sort of put out, which was, um, since it's, it's already come up, which is this one of exposure and vulnerability that I think each of you touched on, Simran, in terms of, I mean, straddling these worlds and, and the sort of difficulty of not being able to, to take off the hat or take off the turban, but it's, it's always already there. And so you're always already public. Um, and that kind of vulnerability, and Brooke, you were talking about professional vulnerability that uh, the academic job market, no matter what, like your post from right after the election is there. And, and Patrick, you and I have talked about this a lot. You're going into, I mean, the people you write about are literally armed. Um, and so, <laughs> like, you're, you're, there's a, a, a physical precarity and vulnerability there, as well as a reputational one, wherein you're trying to build a career as a journalist, but also still in the academic world. And there's, so there's a professional vulnerability as well as a physical one. And um, someone had brought this up as a general question for the group, and it was one I, I really want to make sure, make sure to get to. I don't know, if, Patrick, you're ready to go yeah, there first. I, I <laughs> um. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty real. Uh, the, I mean, I'm, I'm here and, and safe and well. Uh, but but yeah, I, I have I have some fans, uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 what I've learned um, as a key thing, sort of trial by fire, I guess, uh, are certain features of how on, online news is consumed, um, and also about the elements of the process that I, that one qua writer doesn't have control over, uh, and the way that those can produce, uh, let's call them complications, uh, and how going forward I've tried to mitigate that as best I can. Um, case in point, wrote a piece for uh, the New York Daily News, which I have a good relationship with, actually. Um, actually, I, I snuck in at some stuff. I, I snuck in a whole thing about reaction formations once. I was very happy about this, but I didn't use the phrase at all, and I was like, yes. <laughs> I, I, did, I, I, I did it for Sigmund. Um, but uh, but, but, but I, I wrote this piece for them, and it, was, it didn't have a clear policy deliverable. It was, it was about guns, but it wasn't like, it was just about what's the, the character of a, a certain type of fear that animates certain type of people. And I didn't, I just wanted to, to present it in a fairly humanizing way, but also I didn't have a clear policy upshot. Uh, and I went back and forth with my editor and he wanted something and I'm like, no, I'm not gonna do this. Uh, and eventually it ran. Uh, and I, 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 stuck, I stuck to my guns, no pun intended on that one. And it turned out nicely, or at least the content turned out great. Uh, what I hadn't realized at that point, uh, this is one of the first things I ever wrote, uh, is that you, first off, you have no uh, say over the title. Uh, and most people, many readers will only read that, uh, which is an experience. Uh, but also that if the newspaper decides that, and I really, this was a problem, uh, if the newspaper decides that you are insufficiently um, uh, policy-oriented, uh, they can always 
print alongside your article, say, uh, a, a, cut this out and mail it to your representative because you want assault weapons to be banned. Uh, and <laughs> in, 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 the in the complete world, we might call this, like the, the Girardian and the Genetian paratext surrounding the text rather over-determines the content of it. And so I spent about a month uh, getting phone calls from militia members and late night emails, and uh, it, was, it was pretty awful. Uh, and uh, yeah, weird stuff happened. People called my job a lot and wanted me fired. Uh, got a lot of threats. Um, and and pe like people created like fake rate my professor scores for me and all this shit. And it was it was really like, like yeah, it was, it was they really went far. It, it was very very strange. He was like, like Professor Blanchfield. That wasn't a professor. Yeah, teaches English one hundred and one, and he's always being political and never uses the textbook. And I'm like, there is no textbook in this course. Like I'm I'm coming up with like, uh, but. but yeah, exactly. They, 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 I, I, I was I, I got a, a zero on the hotness scale from some from some Kentucky militiaman. Some three percenter was like he's he's he's, he's a hard two. Uh, I mean, like my how I have dealt with this is one I try to foreground certain concerns with editors. I'm like, please, whatever. Like I'll send a couple. Like yeah, these are some titles you might want to consider. And of course, like in this age of online publishing, a lot of algorithmic stuff happens, and you'll see your piece with 15 different titles. Uh, so you know you can't really control that. But I when I when I've built built relationships with individual editors, I've told them please be like I I'm the one who gets the mail on this, right? And if a good editor will answer, will accept that, right? Because they don't get the mail. Um, on another level, I I had I was thinking about what you said, Brooke, earlier about how like you have a piece about the election. Like at a certain point, like I realized I have a Google problem, uh, or I had a Google problem, uh, and the only thing I could do was generate more content. Mm -hmm. uh, and just so now there are other things that you will, as opposed to the, the, the charming people on, on AR15.com, and they're literally it was literally like two or three thousand posts. People wrote poems about me and shit. Uh, <laughs> Instead of that, now, now I, there's other things, and so, so you can to the extent to which like the internet is a forgetting machine that you can actually flood with content. You know, I hopefully I'm not whistling in the dark here too much, and I had to turn around and start getting alerts. Uh, you know, and, and other best practices have other people read your mail. Sometimes never read the comments on anything ever, ever, ever. Um, that's something I learned. That's been sort of self-protective, and I mean, if if it gets too rough at a certain point, I'll bail from it. But but also like I do think like. I was raised in, a, I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I was raised in a Catholic tradition. I was taught by Jesuits. Uh, something that was hammered into me from the very beginning was that if you have been given a lot, you have to give back. And to, to those two, much is given, much is expected, right? And I am a straight white guy. Uh, I can fly under the radar if I want to. Um, and I think that actually comes with a series of responsibilities. Uh, so, you know, I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah. yeah, although I did mention professional vulnerability uh, earlier, I have to say I haven't yet experienced anything but goodwill and support from, from those folks who I know do both, and it's more my own anxiety of possible future job market that that, that plays into. Um, on Killing the Buddha at, and anybody who writes about a religion of any kind online, it's kind of one of the most contentious things you can do to make any statement about any <laughs> religion that you are part of or not part of or anything. Um, and at Killing the Buddha, we actually do not have a comments section. And that is, um, we, we sometimes have debates about that because we want to be part of a conversation and we do want to hear from our readers. But we found that it just got so ugly 
so amazingly fast, we have a mechanism where you can, you know, click send a letter to the editor, which is a very old-fashioned print way of doing things that we love. And so we occasionally do get, you know, relatively well thought out responses from readers because they've had to take that that longer step. And sometimes we've published them as responses. And so we try to, to slow it down a little bit that way. Um, but we do especially, um, we have many excellent women writers who have been trolled really pretty horribly um, for things that they write on KTB, I'm sorry to say. Um, especially for why we had a relationship with Salon.com where they were publishing um, select of our stories and that gave us suddenly a much wider um, bandwagon. I'm thinking of a story by Kaya Oaks who some of you may know has written three books um, often on Catholicism, teaches writing at Berkeley and wrote this amazing piece about um, the possibility of women priests in the Catholic church and it was beautiful and she got so much flack for that um, once it went out in salon that she just kind of shut off her social media research right, the whole thing so that is a real that is a real thing and never read the comments absolutely definitely block people on social media ignore the social media if you have to um, it does get frightening and it does feel personal sometimes but I think um, both both of the writers that I'm thinking of for KTB who who were trolled are you know continuing and it, it didn't it didn't stop them although it is scary so um, yeah I can talk about the exposure and vulnerability I think um, similar to Patrick and Brooks experiences um, uh, I, I don't know if you would agree with the statement but I think the more you put yourself out there the more exposed you are and the more sort of responses you get. Um, and for me, I initially took it very personally. Um, and I think, I think we all do. Um, you know, if you, if you ask, I'm, I'm a big sports fan, and if you ask an athlete what they remember about a game, they won't remember the 10 good things they did. They always remember the one mistake. And, and, and I'm, I'm the same way with these sorts of things. I, I, I don't remember the positive comments, and, and I, the, the critiques really stick out. So that's that's always there. Um, there are, you know, as as things have moved along for me, the sorts of threats and you know, angry responses and calls to the president's office that those have increased. Um, but fortunately, I'm in a position uh, like these two where I, I have stability, I have support behind me, and that helps. Um, I, I would say the the difficult thing for me that I that I still struggle with um, is. By the very nature of going out to the public, uh, I end up oversimplifying my perspectives to make them translatable, as we were talking about before. Um, and so I am often critiqued by people uh, who call out the oversimplification um, and say, well, this is wrong because of X, Y, and Z. And, and I don't have an opportunity to say, well, I agree with that. Um, and, and we're not actually in opposition to one another. So there are some actually um, really tense relationships and friendships that I have now that weren't tense before uh, because people are very sort of disturbed by the types of things that I, that I end up presenting. I, I can talk about one of them. And, and this is where we sort of bridge from or move from scholarship to activism. Um, and. and and it, it, it's, I, I recognize this is not where all of you will be, but I, with the Civil Rights Organization, one of our sort of flagship campaigns for the last 10 years has been with the US military. Um, and right now, 
a person of faith cannot display ex- external articles of religious identity and serve in the U.S. military. So we, we perceive this as an issue of workplace discrimination, and we believe if we can get the U.S. government to change that policy, um, and it's the largest employer in the world, then we believe that's a big win for workplace discrimination. I also personally have very strong feelings about the U.S. military complex. Um, and so as an advocate, I'm pushing for workplace discrimination. I'm aware of the critiques, but when I publish things um, and, I, and I speak publicly and I, and I attend certain events, I, I have these people who sort of rally against me. Um, and I can't respond to them in a public way because of the advocacy impact that would have on our work. Uh, and so that is a that is a sort of exposure that I'm that I haven't figured out how to deal with personally because it's affected me both personally and professionally. Yeah, um, I was also thinking as as you guys were talking the trickiness between um, publicness and publicity, right? That like nobody wants to be publishing into a void, and yet at the same time, sometimes that would feel a little bit better. <laughs> like let's just get it out there put it somewhere safe where only people who agree or know how to read this are gonna read it and, and not have to face the misreadings um, versus the like, well, what's the point? Um, and so maintaining that social media and then facing the trolls and, and how to write the right headlines so that you both get readers but not bad readers or mean readers or readers who are only there to sort of make their own point. Um, right, but then there's also a question that goes with that, which is, um, if we are trying not to preach to the choir, exactly. right? Yeah. Then, then maybe you want those trolls to, to see what you're putting out there, and maybe you frame it in a little bit of a different way. But mm-hmm. yeah, that is that is a really personally for me right now since the election. That's that's the toughest question. Um, I've I, I was mentioning to them at breakfast. I've started three different pieces over the last week and scrapped each of them because I'm not sure that publishing in the Washington Post or the New York Times actually does anything in the way that I thought it did before. And we have these, yeah. yeah. So, so that's yeah. I I, I don't know. The well, and that's to that. yeah. That's exactly the pivot of sort of what are you working on now? How are you reframing, reorienting? It has not been very long, but sort of, uh, yeah. What what is changing in your work, or is your work changing, or are you sort of going going back into your classrooms rather than out onto the Washington? Where are you at? Um, I can say a little bit about this. I think. Um, in the last week or so, I've been really encouraged by the number of wonderful people who've written things for Killing the Buddha and sent them right away. Um, It reminded me that there are folks out there who uh, do view us as a place where they can express something that is difficult. Um, And I'm trying right now whether to try to figure out how to publish all of them at once as, as reactions in the moment or to spread them out as commentary over a couple of weeks. Um, but I do think small uh, publications become more, more important in a way. Um, I mean, we do have a, a dedicated readership and we don't have thousands and thousands of, of readers. And so in a way it's like, are we, are we preaching to the choir? Maybe. Um, but I heard this phrase yesterday in a, in a panel here on the digital humanities and religion, the small internet, um, which is like sort of a, a cozier circle of publications that have dedicated readers um, and are therefore somehow able to engage um, with each other in a slightly more personal way. Um, so I'm still working those ideas out, but 
I know KTB is going to be um, around to sort of help that conversation go forward. Patrick? Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, so, so I, I want to answer that. I also want to just pick up on just something that Simran said, too, about the, the social media dimension, right? And, and I think this is, this has cash value, so to speak, for consumers of media as well, right? Um, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, both, but now even more so post the election, I think there are a lot of similarities between precarity-based academic marketplace models and freelancing-based media models. Um, I think that's uh, particularly attenuated in uh, to the extent to which, like, if you're a freelancer, you need to have a social media presence, right? I mean, welcome to neoliberalism. You are a brand, right? <laughs> you have to hype something. And um, that is, that's, that's an awful position to be in. Uh, and I think you could, you, could, you could break this down even further and talk about how, like, you know, the tenured writer has certain similar, or the tenured professor is somewhat similar to the staff writer, right? And the freelancer is basically your adjunct. And you could break this all down if you wanted to. And I think that's actually a, a fecund thing to do. Uh, and if you want to get into this field, you should think about that and we can talk. Um, but what this means, I think, for, um, and also I just want to echo Simmer too, like, there are a lot of people that, like, I've, occasionally I do respond to mail. I respond to good mail all the time because, you know, it's good mail. But sometimes, like, if it's not too atrocious, I occasionally will reply. And I do hear back people being like, well, actually, I, I'm so shocked that you would actually, or you were a human being. Uh, and uh, this is, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's like taking a brick out of a, a, a looming empathy wall or not, but it does something. And those, those actually, I, I've developed good personal relations with people doing that. Um, that said, uh, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that the outcome of this election hasn't put me in a somewhat similar position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, journalistic writing as witnessing uh, the pillaging of my university, of my alma mater, put me relative to academia, mm -hmm. right? Like this, this real sense and like, like watching uh, programs get shut down, people lose their funding. People who just recru recruited lose their funding, for example, uh, for no reason, for reasons of academic, for, for, for reasons that were completely external to the institution in question and to what people thought they were doing with their time, uh, made me realize how fragile and and how what hothouse flowers academics and academia can be, um, and how little you could do the best possible work in your field, and yet somehow it's you know we we need a new campus in Shanghai, so the fact that you train teachers that teach students here, sorry. There's no internationally competitive market for high school principals in, in, in the urban south. Um, now, watching the way in which I think in, in a country that's so incredibly polarized, it, in which algorithmic distribution of news produces these just bottomless silos, uh, and on the one hand, the phenomena of fake news, which I do think is a real problem, but also on the other hand, the phenomena of just like, forgive me, but like straight bullshit news that is not like, I mean, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm running, I actually wrote something for you about this recently, but like, yeah, like, I mean, the amount of time we spent this weekend, like caring about what Mike Pence has to say or not say about Hamilton. Um, I mean, sure, great, but, but also like, the Trump University lawsuit, like he settled it for 60%. That's a big deal, right? But of course, that's not where the media churn is. That's not where the hashtags are. That's not where the funny jokes are, right? So there is a way in which good journalism and good media writing and good critical writing is a slow food and is also something that requires 
discriminating producers. There's so many uh, options out there. It requires discriminating supportive consumers behind it, right? So what I'm basically saying is if there's someone who's writing you like, like follow them, right? Subscribe to your local newspaper, right? Like don't retweet garbage <laughs> like on some basic level like this is, it, it's a two, it's a two-way street right these these marketplace dynamics do exist relative to consumption habits and i think now more than ever uh when we're so saturated with an inundation of news but also with just like awful affect you know being more uh perspicacious and judicious about what we consume can have real good knock-on effects sorry that was long-winded but there you have it sure i can i can add um two things that i two things that I'm doing and then one observation. Um, the first is, you know, so as, as important as it is to recognize the audiences, as we were discussing before, it's also important to recognize our roles and we don't all occupy the same spaces. Uh, one of the roles that I've sort of held and have sort of held more closely the last week is recognizing that I uh, represent and speak for a community uh, that is uh, marginalized right now. And, and, and is really looking for leadership. And so while I have not been sure what my own response is, sometimes, um, sometimes you pretend. <laughs> uh, and, and sometimes, you know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say I'm pretending, but it's, it's um, again, putting myself out there and, and, and trying to, to sort of help model for people where they ought to be. And so I've, I've been doing a lot of that recently. And one of the ways I've been doing that uh, has been as the hate incidents occur around the country, um, when I come to know of them, and often, you know, in the instances where I come to know of them first, um, I help get those stories out there. And so that's been really empowering for people to recognize that things that we would otherwise consider to be uh, mundane racism, based on what we experience in these brown bodies, um, we, we're able to now say that it's not okay. So, so an example is my, my brother-in-law is a student at Harvard Law School. Um, he was uh, out at a grocery store near campus and someone called him a fucking Muslim and then started tracking him aggressively, asking him where he was from aggressively. Um, and he called me on Sunday. This happened on a Friday. He called me two days later about something else and said, hey, by the way, this happened. Do you think it's a big deal? Do you think I should say anything? And he was saying it's not a big deal in the sense that I've, I've had this happen all the time, it didn't affect me. But he said, you know, is there any utility to telling the story? Um, and otherwise, you know, these people around the country just don't think that this is an important story to tell. Um, and so getting these stories out there has been really important. Now the observation is when I get these stories out there now, including his, immediately there is a response, a violent response um, of people calling it a hoax. Um, and that has happened consistently over the last week. It gets to this fake news issue. Um, and you know, in that case, he had credibility as a Harvard Law student. But for people who consider this to be a hoax, they would say, well, that's exactly the type of person who would make up this story. So this issue of, of, of two very different um, regimes of truth, right? That's the only way I can articulate it that makes sense from Foucault. These two different regimes of truth, that's, that's my observation, that it's not something I've ever seen in my lifetime here. Um, it may be something that's, you know, the post-Watergate type of phenomenon. It may be happening elsewhere in the world, but I haven't experienced it personally. And that's when I get back to, well, how do we talk to people? Who do we reach across to? 
that's that's my struggle. And 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 before I've always believed that local opinion writing and local engagement is the most impactful because that's if we're meeting people where they are, that's where they are in local newspapers, local radio, um, local TV. Uh, but I believe that now more than ever. And so if I'm investing anywhere, it's in, you know, I've been reaching out to local reporters and my contacts and saying, let's, you know, let me help you however you can. So that's, that's sort of my, my move there. Um, I, wanna, I wanna open this up to everyone else. I was just thinking though, as you were talking that uh, the invocation of, of a, a Foucauldian framework for this is, is exactly the kind of thing I want to sort of be modeling and also thinking, thinking critically about that it is this, to be able to think in those terms and then do a really different kind of work. Like when you're calling up a local media guy, you are not talking about the Foucauldian idea of like different, you know, like epistemic realms and paradigm shifts and, and you know, the, the regimes of truth. But it, there's a lot of utility in that for you and for all of us who do have that training that that helps us understand the landscape, helps us enter into it and then do a really different kind of articulation once we're there, but I know that when I, when I talk to any of you, when I talk to people professionally, those are our terms. And then we do the work of sort of reconfiguring the terms, reorienting. Um, but it is exactly the most helpful thing for me, having been trained the way that I am, is to say, like, I can't take off the, the Foucault goggles we talk about, right? Um, but then you can't, you can't take those and put them on somewhere, someone else. Right, right. So you've, you've got to do a different kind of work when, when you then speak from that from that training and from that, that kind of knowledge. Um, and that's, that's a really good sort of performance of that, um, exactly. Um, so I wanna see if, if people have other questions or comments, we'd really like, we've been talking for an hour <laughs> um, or more. So we'd really like to hear from other folks. People have questions. <laughs> and also, I wonder, are you mostly self-generating of your pieces that you write, or are you responsive? Are you, did, did you, did you write and have them in relationship with people that you, you feel like you need to speak to this? Or do you come up with stuff on your own that you just feel like you want to put out there? Uh, yeah, I can, I, I, so I, I can... I, um, it just occurred to me, actually, that if there was one editor besides Kaylee who you could come at with the Foucault thing, it might be Steve Bannon at Breitbart, because apparently he's totally, like, he actually, he really is jacked into that theory stuff, and, and yeah, yeah. helping my impression of jargon. No, you know, it's what a perverse and crazy world we're in right now. It just kind of feels unreal. Uh, to the hustle. Uh, I mean, like, it's the similarities between it and adjuncting are acute. I think like you are so so where I'm at in my career now after after five years of doing this I'm at the point where people pitch me that I mean like I'm pitching things constantly I try to write two three pitches a week I know people who are writing five pitches a day those people are crazy uh, I mean I just don't know where they get there maybe it's amphetamines or just something um, but uh, but yeah I'm at the point now where I, I have long-standing relationships with a variety of people after but and then then they'll contact me if there's a story that they want me to look into or if there's a something they need reviewed or whatnot um, that said I also consume um, news relative to my beat and I'm regularly pitching things based upon that in terms of the pragmatics of the hustle I mean I would be lying I, like I, I I should own like I'm not the primary breadwinner in my relationship right like I um, uh, I'm blessed with with this uh, 
uh, with this postdoc, and someone, one of y'all should apply for it. It really is magnificent. <laughs> um, but like, you know, uh, pache that, like, payment can be incredibly inconsistent. Pitching is not remunerated, nor is payment fulfillment. And in, with the right people, payment fulfillment can be a nightmare, right? Like my record for the longest I've gone without being paid for peace is somewhere between nine and 10 months. Uh, and we're talking like $500, right? So like the amount of time you have to do for that is that's, that's, that's that also is a little crazy. Um, and of course there are all sorts of like, there's, you know, you do have you, 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 I guess I, I'll spin, I'll, I'll attenuate the positive here, right? You find the publications that do pay you, that pay you promptly, that uh, respond to emails, that actually will address the issue of money up front, as opposed to like studiously dancing around it for three, four emails. That's always a bad sign. Um, and then, you know, you make your, you, you, you have a complicated tax picture when, <laughs> Because, <laughs> like, you're getting paid lump sums, right? You're not getting deducted. Um, and you constantly are, are, are planning for fallow periods. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I, I, I don't, look, I mean, to, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think it's, just, I don't think full-time freelancing on many beats is a sustainable long-term proposition given the current marketplace dynamics. So, yeah. Can I also just echo that to say, yeah, we were uh, we were talking earlier about one of our couple of our favorite freelance writers, freelance investigative reporters, which is like the hardest of the hard, and many of them are looking for full time jobs, which is the saddest thing ever because they do amazing work on their own. So, I mean, I I miss the hustle now that I'm not in it anymore. I have to say, um, but I did go back to school for a certain sense of stability. Um, and so I haven't been pitching. Um, I have written some non-academic things that people have come to me, fortunately, in the past year or so since I've been a student. Um, I have developed a habit, which I'm told my, my scholarly friends tell me that this is not really done. Instead of pitching, because I pitched for so long, I will propose conference papers that I haven't written yet and have no knowledge of <laughs> I recently did one on uh, on the the uh, Trump's response to the Gold Star family, um, which I wrote the proposal at a time when I assumed he was not going to win, and now I have to like rearrange my whole thing. Anyway, but I'm I'm told that's not done, but I find it a productive way to get myself to write. So that's where the freelancing and academic thing is clashing for me right now. Yeah, my my answer to that question would would it, it really depends on your personal interest and situation. Um, if you are looking at it for, um, from a financial perspective, that's very different than if you do it out of, you know, an advocacy or service perspective. Um, if you are doing journalistically as opposed to opinion, um, or if you are trying to uh, do features, the, the nature of those worlds are very, very different from one another. Um, for me personally, I was not interested in the payment, and now that I receive payment for some pieces, it's a nice, pleasant surprise. But as the as the world of journalism has gone increasingly digital, every platform has you know it's hard not to get published at this point because they they don't have any restrictions or limits on content. As long as it's good enough, they'll take it, um, and so you, you'll you'll land somewhere. But because there is so much material out there they're not inclined to pay anymore. The, the Huffington Post sort of 
ruin that for everybody uh, by doing free content and and now everybody's doing that and so I, I don't know who rarely I get I think the Times the Washington Post doesn't pay anymore really? NBC pays I, I don't yeah it's it's you you would have to do research if you are interested in pitching like an opinion or feature piece at least mm-hmm. yeah I think the journalism pieces they pay and that's what Patrick does more than us so, so I can I just really rapidly, there's a, a very good re- resource. There's a website called Who Pays Writers, which is actually somewhat similar to the academic wiki where people file what they got paid per word. Uh, you can rapidly figure out what the ecology is, right? Web content generally pays the least, and then black and white newsprint is slightly less than that, depending unless it's a weekend. Rather, more than that, then, unless it's a weekend, then it's a little bit more. And then it, it works its way up till you know, big glossies. And, you know, so like GQ will pay like four bucks a word. I've never gotten within a fraction of that. So like that's, that's, that's like the person I know who gets that money actually won a National Book Award. So like, like yeah, like again, like, but yeah, who pays writers? Good resource. Um, it's interesting that, again, the, the mirroring of the, the academic and the journalistic worlds I'm struck in, in, into his one being the, the freelancer and the adjunct, obviously, and then um, the two things of the, when you write an email to an academic saying, I'd like you to write about this thing and we'll pay you this much, the gratitude you get yeah. <laughs> of like, my God, you pay me for writing. And people are so shocked. Um, and it's this, this tricky thing of like, well, it doesn't count for my tenure case, but like I sure could use the 500 bucks. Yeah. Um, and so people sort of, especially young scholars, adjunct scholars, precariat professors who are making this equation about their time. Where is my time more worthwhile? Is my time more worthwhile working on that journal article that's gonna take three years to publish? Or do I do this article using, you know, using whatever resources I have and, and get a check in a month or two? Um, and I think, again, it depends who you're writing to. The revealer does pay. Um, <laughs> And through a, an onerous and, and terrible NYU bureaucracy that takes forever, so just preemptive apologies. Um, but it is interesting the difference between getting a pitch from a seasoned journalist who says, like, where's my contract and what are the conditions of my payment, et cetera, versus a scholar who says, wait, what? <laughs> um, Can I say two other please? things? One, similar to the adjunct model, uh, there is there is an ethical consideration to uh, participating in the contribution of journalism um, and not taking payment. And and what that means is you're actually taking away from people who professionalize in that field. Mm -hmm. And so that is something, at least to keep in mind, whatever you decide to do with it. Um, The the other point um, for me really in in terms of the hustle is and, and you can speak to this in, in your experiences, but in my experience, the the actual pitching of the story of the piece is the worst part of the process entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, the writing is fun; it's usually short, um, especially an opinion piece, which is, you know, 750 words, and it takes you it can take you half an hour to pump out. Um, but the the pitching can take days, weeks, and a lot of times, by the time somebody responds to you, the moment is gone and, and nobody cares anymore. So, so that can be really frustrating. Mm-hmm. That's, I, for me, that's the hardest part. Mm-hmm. Another question. You, you talked about how you uh, manage perhaps both roles that some of you play, scholar journals, in terms of uh, social media presence. You mm-hmm. talked about the vulnerability that, that exists sometimes when you talk about certain topics, but really all of you have Twitter, you on Facebook, 
I'm, I'm currently toggling among three Twitter accounts, <laughs> one that is me, one that is killing the Buddha, and one that I'm very grateful to just have been given access to the UNC Religion Department's <laughs> Twitter account. So they trust me, That's which is cool. nice. Um, I promised them I'd keep it PG as opposed to killing the Buddha where I didn't make it. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking about this at that camp uh, the other day when we were talking about um, how to sort of streamline your own presence as an individual scholar and writer. And I, I haven't cohered those identities enough yet to do that, but I try to just be out there as all of them right now. Anyone else? Uh, I, I mean, like, I think you, you probably need a Twitter account when you're starting. Uh, I mean, defining, I, I made so many mistakes on that front, uh, but, but like defining the scope of it is very important, right? So if you have a personal one, it's, you know, it's, Know, like basketball and molecular gastronomy or whatever, right? And you say that on the top head. Uh, the uh, the London School of Economics has a really good guide to Twitter engagement for academics. I think if, if you were to Google LSE Twitter academics, it's a good 100 pages long. It's a PDF. It's excellent. Um, Tressie McMillan Cottom, a uh, sociologist out of UVA, uh, has a, no, I'm sorry, out of um, uh, University of Virginia Richmond, uh, has a excellent series of articles on her blog and that have been also run, I think, in digital sociology that get into how to manage that. And she's her work is thoroughly intersectional. So she talks about different calculi for different types of people and what happens when stuff platform jumps or doesn't. Um, my own best my own best practice is I have a Twitter account and you know I what happens there happens there. Uh, <laughs> I, I stopped caring about losing <laughs> followers at a certain point. Uh, and Facebook is private. That's basically it. Can you say again the name of the person who has those guidelines? Yeah, uh, Tressie, T-R-E-S-S-I-E, McMillan, uh, M-C-M-I-L-L-A-N, Cottom, C-O-T-T-O-M. Uh, and she, uh, yeah, she's she's on Twitter as Tressie McPhD, uh, and she's given, actually, she's, I oh what little Twitter kung fu I have to her guys, which are truly superlative, and I, I recommend her scholarship, too. She's, she's brilliant. Yeah, I would say... Like like Patrick was saying before, this this world is is it's a, it's a world about brands, um, and so you can shape your brand however you want, and I think everyone should be conscious of the fact that they are a brand in this world and should at least give some thought to how they want it to be. Um, for my own purposes, I I decided that it was important for the type of work that I do uh, to be well rounded. So I want my personal and public together. Um, and that comes at the risk, uh, at some risk to my family. So it's something I talk to my wife about. Um, and we have a we have a nine-month-old daughter. I include photos of her publicly. Everything for me is public, um, and that's that's a conscious decision. It comes with risk, and everyone should be aware of that. Uh, we do get threats, death threats, threats to our family, um, and and my I, I keep my wife uh, in the dark about most of those, but she knows that they're there. Um, but but that is I, I think that is something worth keeping in mind as, as you go through this process. The, the other the other question is where where do academics live online? Um, and so there are there is a small group of academics on Twitter. They're not as much on Facebook publicly. They're on Facebook privately. Um, if you look at the hashtag for this conference, it's it's relatively sparse compared to most communities that I'm a part of. Um, but the reporters all live online. They're all on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do and what I did uh, was find out all the reporters that I want to be connected to and follow them. 
and they won't follow you back. Um, but if you sort of build a your you know your own brand and, and interact with them, you might build these relationships. So that's that's sort of how to go about it. Um, I would just say that I know uh, coming out of graduate school and into this job, I was told by the woman who preceded me, who was, who was wise and had learned a lot of things in her time at The Revealer, she said, you're going to have to use your personal page to advertise things. You're just going to have to. And I said, no, no, no. I don't want to. <laughs> like, I'm just going to do The Revealers, and it'll be fine. And like, I'll figure out Twitter, I guess. And then, um, and I think, and, and within not very long, I started using my, my personal page. And if any of you are my friends, like, I'm sorry. It, you know, it's like just constant. Every time there's a new issue and tagging people and doing all of that. And um, I realized very quickly how important it was and that there was a sort of crudely social capital and less crudely relationships that um, I found to be really satisfying to, to build those, those that way, and that there are people I meet at the AAR who I've been tagging in Facebook posts for, for years and have never met, and, um, and still consider those like really robust exchanges and things that, that I um, have learned a lot from. Um, but, I, but I was hesitant, and, and when I look back at why I was hesitant, I think it's because when you're in graduate school, you know that no one really cares what you're doing. <laughs> and like, no, your friends do not want to hear about what you just read or like who you just talked to. And um, I, most of my friends are non-academics or, or were at the, as I was doing this. And so um, it was a tough transition to think like people do care what I'm reading and people do care who I'm talking to and uh, to, to own that and sort of use it in a way that I, I think of now as, as elevating work that I'm interested in and that I believe in and, and amplifying those voices and sharing them broadly because I do have these non-academic friends. And again, my internet is small. It is all of the things you described, the NPR totes and all of that. Um, but they're not religion scholars. So when they read a piece by one of these guys or someone else, they, they learn something. Um, and that that's one of the that turns out to be one of the best parts of the job is is getting to do that that building and that I realized uh, leveraging non-academic personal relationships uh, was actually pretty fun um, and and worked well, but but also was really scary and felt weird. Um, it's six thirty, <laughs> so thank you guys all so much for coming. Thank you all. This was really great. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.